Hey there, history fans! Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the modern age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we are continuing our Wars of the Roses series. Yay! We will be talking about the battles that occurred during the Wars of the Roses. So this is going to be kind of long. There's a lot. And we literally had to break this up into five-year periods. So I will start with 1455 to 1460. And we'll begin with the very first battle that basically launched the Wars of the Roses. It occurred on May 26, 1455. And it is known as the First Battle of St. Albans. Because yes, there was a second one. We'll be talking about it later. So the First Battle of St. Albans marked the beginning of what we know of as the Wars of the Roses. And it starts off with, of course, Richard, the Duke of York, being kicked out of the royal court by the king, who was Henry VI at the time. And the Duke of York banded together with Richard Neville, a.k.a. the Kingmaker. And they gathered their armies together and marched on to meet King Henry's army in battle. Henry is obviously the Lancastrians, and the Duke of York is Yorkist. And this battle took place at St. Albans, just north of London, and the king's army was actually led by the Duke of Buckingham, and they were 2,000 men strong. Buckingham was the first one to arrive at St. Albans, and he began the process of fortifying the town. The Yorkist forces arrived later and began negotiations with the Lancastrians that never ended up coming to fruition, and that's how the battle broke out. During this battle, the Yorkist forces suffered heavy casualties, and the tides only turned against the Lancastrians because Richard Neville led a group of men around and to the back end of the Lancastrian army. He basically surrounded them. And... This took the Lancastrians by surprise, and Neville ended up pushing through the Lancastrian army, and they ended up abandoning their post. And during their retreat, the Yorkist archers shot arrows at the Lancastrians. And the Duke of Buckingham, along with several other nobles, Lancastrian nobles, died, or were killed, however you'd like to describe that. And King Henry was actually injured. So not 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 so great for the Lancastrians and the and those those royals there. So the Richard the Richard so Richard, Duke of York, along with Richard the Kingmaker, basically took Henry and took him back to London and made Richard, Duke of York, the protector, the Lord Protector again. He was Lord Protector once before. Would you like to add anything? <laughs> Just in case anyone's interested in some battle tactics, there's a really great video on YouTube that it will have a link to that was all about the battle tactics. And I find it fascinating. So in terms of St. Albans, you had Henry's forces defending sort of the city they were in the market square. And the Yorkists came flanking on the sides of Southwell and Shropshire lanes. And they advanced 
and then that didn't work. So then the the the, the center advanced on them, and then of course you had York coming in from behind, sandwiching everything. Just in case you're wondering about how it all advanced and took place. All righty then. Battle of Bloor Heath came next. So the Battle of St. Albans occurred in 1455. The next major battle occurred in 1459, so four years later. And in September of 1459, the Earl of Salisbury was heading south with his army to join with the Duke of York at Ludlow. At the same time, Richard Neville was heading to Warwickshire from, from London. The king was once again building up an army. However, Margaret of Anjou, the queen, who was located at Staffordshire, would command Lord Audley to meet with the Earl of Salisbury before he ever reached Ludlow and joined forces with the Duke of York. Basically, she was trying to cut him off. And at the time, the Earl of Salisbury was commanding a troop between 3,000 and 5,000 men. So, Yorkists, 3,000 to 5,000 men. Lord Audley, Lancastrian, commanded an army between 8,000 and 14,000 men. It's a very big difference. At minimum, a 5,000 men army difference. That's going to be a standard throughout many of these battles. Oh yeah, you will notice throughout most of us talking that the Yorkists were consistently outnumbered. By at least five to 10,000 per battle. Yeah. And on September 23rd, 1459, Lord Audley and his army intercepted the Earl of Salisbury and his army. Hence the battle began at Lorheath. <laughs> Even though the Yorkists were majorly outnumbered, they won. However, this victory did not last very long. They did not get to bask in the glory of victory. Three weeks after the Battle of Blorheath, the Duke of York ends up deserting his army and fleeing to Ireland. And Salisbury and Warwick flee to Calais, a English territory in France. And the army ended up surrendering to the king. So both of them left the country, or all three of them ended up leaving the country of England and fleeing across one of the channels, either to Ireland or French. And then the Battle of Northampton occurs on July 19, 1460. And there, the Yorkist forces met with the Lancastrian forces at the Delaprey Abbey in Northampton. Richard Neville was leading a force, and Richard Neville and his men approached Henry's encampment and they were actually just let in. Just let right on in? Yeah. Yeah, you want to know by who? Go ahead. You want to take a guess? Duke of Somerset? No. Lord Grey of Ruthen. The thing I know about him is about the, uh, the Owen Glendord uprising. Yeah, he's pretty minor in this sense. Except that he just let the Yorkist army walk in. Of course, this must have been a much later Great of Ruthen because that uh, Glendora uprising was in the early 1400s. Yeah. Hmm. My bad. Could have been his son. Or grandson by this point. 
You never know. 60 years is a lot of time. So Lord Grey of Ruthen simply laid down his arms and so did his soldiers and allowed Neville and his men to enter the camp. The battle was so short. I'll give you one more time to guess. Do you Can you guess how long the Battle of Northampton lasted? Was this the one that took two hours? Shorter. Half an hour? Yes, 30 minutes. It lasted approximately 30 minutes of time, with the outcome being that King Henry VI was once again captured. Would that maybe be the shortest battle on English soil? Because that's a pretty, and that's actually shorter than the Zanzibar battle. That took about 38 minutes. I don't know if it's the shortest battle. It was the shortest battle in the Wars of the Roses that I know of. Well, yeah. I don't know if this is the shortest battle that occurred on English soil. I can imagine that it was unless another battle lasted like 20 minutes. <laughs> or 29 minutes. There you go. But at the end of the day, Henry VI was captured again. And another round of Lancastrian noblemen were dead again. And... Lord Grey of Ruthen betrayed King Henry VI with his actions, and the reasoning he gave was that he was in the midst of a property dispute. And he was convinced and told that if he helped the Yorkists, they would support and help him in his property dispute. Yeah, that's the most ridiculous reasoning I've heard in a while, but I, I've, I believe there's worse out there. So... The next battle was the Battle of Wakefield, about six months later, five months later, really, in December. So at this time, the Duke of York was at his castle, Sandal Castle, and with him were approximately 6,000 men. A few miles away, at Pontefract, was a Lancastrian force. And once again, the Lancastrian forces outnumbered the Yorkists. And knowing that he's outnumbered, York knows he needs reinforcements, and therefore he sent out a letter to his son asking for reinforcements and assistance. And then for some unknown reason, he just decides he's not going to wait for those reinforcements. He just decides he's going to leave his castle and head to battle. However, this was quite a mistake. From his point of view, the Duke of York could only see a portion of the Lancastrian army. He thought they were all gathered in one place or something like that, and they weren't. If I remember from my research, uh, I mean, the sources will vary, obviously, so there's no definitive as to exactly what happened. But I, if I remember the what you're about to get into was some kind of trickery from the Lancastrians, and showing false flag colors and trying to have York think that he his reinforcements had arrived when they hadn't yet arrived. So then he stepped out with his army and troops to face up against Margaret's troops. I didn't find that in my sources, but hey, it's always different, right? Basically, did not, from, from my source... Richard, Duke of York, did not see, like, half the army or something of, of the Lancastrians. 
And then the rest of the Lancastrian army ended up surrounding the Yorks from all sides, killing Richard, Duke of York, and almost half of the Yorkist armed forces. At the end of this battle, the Yorkists lost the majority in the north, and the armies that stood with the Earl of March and Richard Neville were separated from each other. Not a positive outcome. Boo! Yorkists are losing. I don't know if that's good or bad because I'm not really taking sides. I'm just saying they lost a really, in a really horrible way. So Richard, the third Duke of York, who was Lord Protectorate and was the father of the men who would become King Edward IV and King Richard III, died. Goodbye, Richard, Duke of York. I will not miss saying your name, for I will say it again, because there are other Richards in history. If, if it makes it any sadder, this is just after Christmas days. Happen. Yeah, December 30th, mm-hmm. 1460. So that's a great way to spend a holiday. <laughs> we are now moving on to 1461-1465. And we shall start this at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross which took place just outside of the borders border between Wales and England. So it's actually it happened it occurred in England just just right right by that border. Right by that border. We'll also find out in some later battles. That's a tricky border. Oh yeah. And this occurred on February 2nd, 1461. The Yorkists led by Edward, the Earl of March, met with the Lancastrians led by Jasper Tudor. Just to give you a reminder, he's the uncle of Henry Tudor, who will later become King Henry VII. This battle was an absolute win for the Yorkists. Many of the commanders of the Lancastrian side were taken captive, including Owen Tudor, Jasper Tudor's father, Henry Tudor's grandfather, and those captured were also executed later on. There's not much on the men in the battle. I couldn't find much. I was having some difficulties. Did you have anything to add to that one? Nope. This is just the first battle that introduced the Tudors into the line of succession. That's all I could come up with. Then we're going into... Are you ready? Are you ready for this one? We've mentioned this place before. The other battle of St. Albans? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's called the second battle. We had the first, and now we gotta have the second. <laughs> gotta go in order here. The Lancastrian army was heading south towards London, post the Battle of Wakefield, and Mortimer's Cross, under the leadership of Queen Margaret of Anjou. Richard and his army went to to cut off the Queen's march south. Neville set up camp right outside of St. Albans. The Queen, however, she caught wind of this little bit of news. She found out. Some little birdie told her. And she steered the army around the Yorkists' army. On February 17, 1461, Margaret and her army reached St. Albans and used the cover of dark to enter the city. The Lancastrian army marched through the city of St. Albans, and they took quite the hit from the Yorkist archers. However, the Lancastrians did overcome those archers and just little bit of reminder outside of the archers the rest of the york army was with neville just north of the town because that's where he set up camp he put the archers in the town 
Neville came to the realization that he lost control of St. Albans, decided to retreat with his army, and he took about 4,000 men to Oxfordshire. King Henry VI, who had been previously captured during the Battle of Northampton, was actually left, left behind by the Yorkist army. They just, eh, you can have him back, I guess. Well, he's a bit useless. He's majorly been useless this entire his entire reign. Well, true, but I mean, even as a king in battle, he's fairly useless. His wife does more. Yeah, and no one's trying to get him back. I've never read anything about anyone trying to get the king back. Other than Margaret and their son, but that's just for political purposes? Yeah, pretty much. But as far as I know, when it comes to Henry in battle, I don't he didn't lead anything. Most of the time he was just sitting in his tent. Yep, basically. Now we come on the Battle of Towton. What I wanted to say is uh, at the end of St. Albans, what makes the second battle of St. Albans actually pretty important is that it was a Yorkist battle in which they, so we had Warwick's men kind of fraction off and Edward was off fighting the Tudor faction. We finished fighting uh, Jasper and Owen Tudor. He came back, joined the groups with the remaining faction of Warwick's they teamed up against Margaret and Henry and their supporters. They lost. The two of them fled north towards northern England. And at the same time, because of this, and this is why Warwick's called the Kingmaker, due to this victory, no king in London. What do they do? Go straight to London. And Edward takes the throne, becomes Edward IV. March 29th, 1461 is when Towton occurred. And Edward wasn't crowned until June 26th. He had his coronation in June. That's when it counts. Well, that's how that to Edward V. He didn't become king. He didn't have his coronation. He really wasn't. He was a boy. <laughs> he really wasn't a king, if you want to consider it that way. He was kind of just in place. That's how I usually look at it, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. There was confusion on the our, our, our end on timelines. On March 29th, 1461, the Battle of Towton began, and it was the worst battle to occur during the Wars of the Roses. Henry VI and Parliament had basically already passed the rights of the crown to Richard, Duke of York, upon Henry's death. Margaret, who of course was not happy with this outcome because it would deprive her son of his own birthright, this is just little little bits before. And Edward, the Earl of March, took his men and headed north in order to depose King Henry VI at the time. The armies on both sides numbered between fifty and 65,000 men, and they met on a cold day with a snowstorm occurring in the field between, the battle, between Taunton and Saxton. And the armies basically battled out for hours, and only towards the end did the Yorkists end up gaining their advantage. The Lancastrians ended up losing, and as they retreated, the Yorkists decided they were not going to be backing down. And they continued their pursuit of the retreating army, and took several knights as basically prisoners of war. 
and the supposed death toll of the Battle of Tower was about 20,000 people. While the Yorkists won, King Henry VI, Queen Margaret, and their son escaped to Scotland. And that's where they took refuge. Would you like some tactics? Sure. Given it's the bloodiest battle of the whole war and bloodiest battle fought on English soil, there's tactics. So at the beginning, they met a little skirmish called Ferry Bridge. Alright, so you've got Henry VI's troops of about 35,000, which is a lot. And uh, they met with Edward's troops, which were certainly a lot less than 35,000. Now, Ferry Bridge is literally a bridge between uh, on one side, you got land on one side, river on the other side. So the day before Tatton, so on February 28th, you've got Lancasters on one side of the bridge, and you've got Yorks on the other side. Yorks on the south end, Lancasters on the north end. Edward sends men up to secure the bridge, but unfortunately, his men were ambushed by fractions of Henry's troops, which kind of caught him from behind. And at this particular skirmish before Towton actually began was also incredibly bloody. The Yorks lost a ton of men. But after the ambush, actually, Edward sent troops back to the bridge, this time with more reinforcements. And they were actually able to drive the Lancastrians back over this little bridge. And then the Lancastrians decided to destroy the bridge to avoid the Yorks being able to cross and further attack them. The Yorks, however, something I never heard of before, were actually able to make a little makeshift raft in which they were attempting to ferry troops across to get to the other side. But unfortunately, it didn't work, and the Lancastrians found it, and they destroyed it. Now, fighting over here on this section near Towton will continue for some time, but during that time, there is a small section of the Yorkist army that were able to cross over at Castleford, which is uh, another small river section on the other end of the section of land they were on. And they set up camp. And then the next day is when the two essentially convened towards, I guess, the west. And then clashed at the Battle of Towton. So the Yorks were encamped about 10 miles north of the city of York which is near Taunton, and the Lancastrians had moved their lines farther up north from there, so it's the high ground, putting them about 100 feet or so above the Yorks. In addition, they also had a very small cavalry posted to the marshes on the west, a sort of a surprise ambush. Now, as we mentioned, it was snowing, the weather was terrible, visibility was horrible, and there were also really strong winds. So the Duke of Somerset, who was on the York side, I'm sorry, he was on the Lancaster side, didn't want to start the battle. So he just sat and said he was going to wait for the Yorks to start the advancement. So yeah, the, um, the York archers are on the front lines. They're advancing, sending a volley of arrows consistently up towards the Lancasters. And again, they're up on a hill. However, the Lancasters was like, oh, well, this isn't going to, you know, we're, we're kind of high up. We'll see how this goes. But they also tried to send their arrows back down. But that didn't work really well for them because the wind's blowing up towards the hill. So it's kind of causing their arrows to fall short, which meant 
that the orcs can actually collect the enemy arrows, add them to their garrison and their to their amount of arrows. Now they've doubled their amount of arrows because they're collecting enemy arrows and now sending even more arrows back up towards the Yorkists up on the hill. So that didn't go very well, obviously, for the Lancasters. So because their archers in the front lines that were dealing with, obviously, this very extra heavy casualties from the Yorkist archers collecting their arrows and shooting them right back at them, the Lancasters had to charge ahead with melee weapons and do hand-to-hand combat, so they actually were able to come down from their post, engage the Yorks, who were still sending enemy arrows right back at them, but they went and fought hand-to-hand, and it went on for some while. But while this was happening, that little small Lancastrian cavalry that was stationed in the marches came out and then very heavy casualty to the flanks on the York side. But Edward, being there, was actually able to take his men and push back the ambush. The Lancastrians obviously still outnumbering the Yorks, as we said, for at least a good 5,000 per battle, forced them into a retreat. But just as it looked like they might lose, because you've got the, the cavalry and one flank of the Lancasters now fighting the central portion of the, the Yorks and pushing them back. But the Duke of Norfolk finally arrived, and his men, with about 5,000 men, began to fight with Edward, driving back the Lancastrians. And they drove them right back up to the hill. And then, as we said afterwards, there's about 2,000, 20,000 killed on the Lancastrian side, give or take maybe 10,000 or so killed on the Yorkist side. The weather, the strategic location, it was just not in the Yorkist favor, or the Lancastrian favor. No, it wasn't. After the Battle of Towton and let the Lancastrian royal army fling, as well as the royal line fling to Scotland, Edward, the son of Richard, Duke of York, who I was talking about a lot, was crowned the King of England, becoming King Edward IV. He entered London victoriously on June 26, 1461, and was crowned king on June 28, 1461, at Westminster Abbey. Because, of course, where else would you have it? Where else would you have your coronation when you just victoriously entered London after the Battle of Towton? And Westminster Abbey was around in 1066, but William the Conqueror didn't have his coronation there. I know, but think about the history of how many kings have been coronated there. It, you, you go there for your coronation, you go there for your weddings. And then you go there after you die sometimes. Yeah, there you go. Three times you see it. One of them you're not really looking. You're probably baptized there too. Uh, but do you remember being baptized there? And a manuscript that measured 20 feet was created in order to celebrate King Edward IV's coronation. Yeah, what manuscript would that be? I don't know what they called it. I couldn't find it, but he just had it made, and it was 20 feet long. Never heard of it. Me either. The only thing that comes to mind is the Bayou Tapestry, but that wasn't during the War of the Roses. And, of course... At the end, the last thing I will mention between 1461 and 1465 is that once again, Henry VI was captured. Did you keep count? Because I stopped counting. This is 
was the third capture? Unless I got lost somewhere, and it's the fourth. Is, is that sure. capture and recapture, as in he's captured by the enemy side as well as his own side? Oh no. Always just by the Yorkists. His own side doesn't really capture him, they just kind of take him back. <laughs> Ouch. Harsh but true, let's just face it. They really <laughs> followed his wife, Margaret. So... In July 1465, Henry VI was captured by the Yorkists in Lancashire. Did you get to the Battle of Hexham yet? No, that's not even a battle that we decided to talk about. Well, it happened in 1464. I know, but we only did the major battles. We did huh. decide, We decided not to talk about every single battle, but major only the major ones. That's why we outlined it the way we did. I've got like three battles in my section. I don't have much to talk about. Don't worry. One, two, three, four, five. I have six more things to talk about in the next section. I think we're good. <laughs> and now I keep losing my place. Stop it. Uh, okay, so Henry is again captured. Because there was an uprising in 1464 from the Lancastrians, and it failed in 1465, which is when he was captured. And do tell Melissa, where did where did Henry end up going? The where tower? did they take him? Thank you. They put him in the Tower of London. I mean, he's he doesn't leave England. His wife does, but he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so he was. A prisoner in the Tower of London until he was restored to the throne of England for a brief period of time. And by brief, I mean really brief. Then he went right back to the Tower again. Yeah. Go back to previous episodes to find out how brief. So, yay, I get to talk about the, the interim middle battles, whatever you want to call it. So, I get, I'm talking about, right now, 1466 to 1475. I just grouped them all together because there's really not a whole lot of battles. So in 1465, as we said, Henry VI was captured again, and Edward IV is now king. And now that you have, essentially by this point, any major Lancastrian claims to the thrones or military leadership heads have either been killed or fled the country in exile or volunteered exile. So this kind of allowed several years of stability, more or less, for the beginning of Edward's reign, aside from a couple small mini-rebellions. During this time, you've got Warwick, who's sort of the right-hand man of Edward, his, I don't know if his best friend, but definitely a very good friend. He's called the Kingmaker. And he's amassed a great deal of wealth and fame for his help with Edward during this time. He's been given a whole lot, lot of lands, a whole lot of Lancastrian lands. He's putting down up, um, uprisings and rebellions. He's taking up more responsibilities within the court. And one of his major ways was to actually negotiate for Edward a wife. So at one point, he was actually in France negotiating with the king on behalf of the French princess. But 
as we know if you listen to our York episode, that doesn't go very well for Warwick. So early in 1465, Edward met, fell in love, and very soon secretly married Elizabeth Woodville. In September of that year, that secret came out. And at that exact time, Warwick is in France negotiating with the French king. That does not look very good for him. In addition to that, Edward actually began an alliance with the Duke of Burgundy, which was a rival faction in France. Generally, you've got France, Burgundy, and Brittany. France is a whole thing. England sounds complicated. France is also quite complicated, especially during this time. And Burgundy, as I said, is a separate state section. And Edward is making an alliance with that section and also not marrying the French princess. So Warwick's put in a really bad predicament with France. He can't get the hand of the French princess and his king, whom he's supposed to be buddy-buddy with, is making an alliance with the French enemy over in Burgundy. Not good for the kingmaker. So first battle that comes up is Edgecote Moor in 1469. So after his several incredible embarrassments and more or less betrayal by Edward, Warwick now began plotting against his old friend. He takes up arms and in 1469, one of his captains actually starts a rebellion up in north of England. And on his way to put out the rebellion, Edward actually found out that their numbers were far more significant than his own. So he decides to hold off and wait for reinforcements. Now, while Edward was away from London, as he was on his way up to the north to put out the rebellion, Warwick rides into London, declares his alliance with the Lancasters. He also aligns himself with Edward's brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, who is actually married to Warwick's daughter. So they're now fighting on the Lancastrian side against family. It's always family against family in this thing. Now, having strengthened his rebellion and strengthened his support up in the north, where most of the Lancastrian support usually came from, Warwick and his troops actually managed to ride around Edward's men over in Nottingham and meet them at Edgecott Moor. Edward was captured by Warwick's troops, but this didn't end up turning very well, though, for Warwick's plans. He tried to sort of go over the king and do things, but it just didn't work. Edward had way too much support. He was very popular, not just with the nobles, but also with the commoners throughout the kingdom. And very soon, Yorkist rebellions broke out on the side of the king, and Warwick had no choice but to release Edward. And of course, this further complicated their relationship. Next year, in March of 1470, in Lincolnshire, Warwick began yet another rebellion, and this is at the Battle of Lothcart Field, Lothcart Field. And as soon as Edward had heard about this rebellion, he was actually, in standard fashion for Edward, very, very quick to quash it out. In fact, he was really quick to quash out the rebellion before the rebellion itself had connected to Warwick's troops, because Warwick is on his way to connect with the rebellion. Edward's troops outnumbered the rebels, and they were very, very soon defeated, and most of them fled. After this latest embarrassment to Warwick, he actually fled England, went to France, 
joined up with Margaret and her son there and began amassing French support for Lancaster. Now, in September of 1470, Warwick landed in Devon with several thousand men. Edward had plans to actually march to meet Warwick in battle, but Warwick's brother John, who had been loyal to Edward, now defected and joined his brother in battle. So with this surge of rebel support between Richard Neville and John Neville, Edward flees England himself, and Warwick marches into London, releases Henry VI from the Tower, and restores him to the throne. So we weren't kidding, it was very quick-lived that he was a prisoner, but also very quick that he's not king. In March of 1471, Edward returned to England with some men and some forces, but not a lot, from the Duke of Burgundy, willing to give him some help, but not much. Warwick and Henry were actually rather quite leery about Edward returning to England because they thought, well, you know, obviously he's come back, he's coming to take the throne, but in some manner of deceit, Edward was actually able to convince them that he's not coming back to take control of the throne. He just wants to come back and reclaim his family lands in York. And they're like, well, okay, I guess. But the city of London was still very loyal to the Yorkists, and they did not like the Lancasters. And they began amassing support for Edward's claim. So soon after Edward landed, it, well, but after Edward got into York, he began to march towards London, all the while gathering reinforcements along the way. Even his traitorous brother, George the Duke of Clarence, who fought with Warwick, against his own brother, now joined him in his fight against the Lancasters. Now, Warwick, thinking that he would have backing and support from the nobles who still stood with Henry, decided not to engage Edward's men as they came to march on London. As he said, London still supports the Yorks. They allowed Edward and his men to enter the city because they liked him. And he was very quick and very soon Yet again, recapturing Henry and putting him in the tower. And with this, Warwick actually fled west in hopes of actually meeting Margaret's forces who were coming from France and landing in Dorset. Now we're coming up to another major battle. Edward's army at this point for this battle were around 10 to 15,000 strong, but still well outnumbered by Warwick's army, which was at least 20,000 strong. Edward knew that he had to take down Warwick's men before the French reinforcements arrived because Margaret had just arrived in Dorset and was coming up to connect with Warwick's forces. So he's like, I've got to take this section out first before the reinforcements arrive because I will lose. We're going to have too many, there's like too many people. We're already outnumbered. Cut this snake's head off. Let's go. So on the 12th of April, the two sides met on a field near the town of Barnet. And Edward and his men actually arrived the night before. And they decided they were going to set their position in the dark with plans for a very early morning attack. Now, some have said, there's, there's differing sources, that Edward would have likely wanted to place himself a certain amount of distance from Warwick's forces, but in some miscalculation or something, 
in the dark, setting it up for an early morning surprise attack, Edward set his forces a lot closer to the enemy forces than intended, or as we potentially intended. But this actually proved to be really fortunate for, um, for Edward. Warwick's forces actually helped use artillery, cannon fire, and all that jazz in order to kind of cut down the enemy. Now, the cannons had a nice trajectory on them, but if you're too close, obviously, you're going to miss the mark because they're going to go pretty far. Usually, you fought kind of far away from each other and then advanced, but somehow Edward ended up too close and under the trajectory of the cannons. So as the Yorks positioned them themselves, setting up for this battle, the cannons were overshooting over the enemy. Now, in standard sort of fashion for the time, I think in general, English fighting fashion for most of its history, you've got a whole line of one army. You've got the cavalry, you've got the artillery, you've got the archers. And often you'll find that they're split into typically three groups, the left flank, right flank, and center. And instead of marching all in one line, one side against the other side, they're sort of maneuvering each left, right, and center to, to face the oncoming. So for the Yorks, you've got the Duke of Hastings on the left flank, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, now 18, fighting with his brother on the right side. And in the center, you've got Edward and George. So all three brothers are now fighting. Now on the Lancaster side, coming from the north, the Duke of Exeter is on the right, Warwick's brother John Neville is on the left, and Warwick himself is front and center. Each army having a reserve behind their main line, which would be center. So early on the 14th, with the morning and very heavy fog, John Neville attacked Hastings' flank, so the left attacked the left, and pushed them into a retreat far back behind the York side, causing very many deaths on the New York end. But the fog being quite so heavy, the remaining forces on either side weren't aware that this actually happened. And then Richard on the, the one flank began to move his, toward, his troops towards the very heavily attacked left flank themselves, causing them back to fall back and retreat. So the Lancasters are now fleeing away from the Yorks. And Warwick, Realizing this, called his troops to support Exeter, reformatted themselves and the line as backup. So instead of a horizontal line, now everyone's in a vertical line. Now, both sides were now one line of warriors, obviously against the other. So John's remaining forces found themselves behind their main line and waited as backup. Unfortunately, because of the low visibility, his banner was said to have been mistaken for Edward's banner, so the stars were mistaken for suns. And there was friendly fire from the main center back onto the reinforcements in the back. And at this point, John Neville, Warwick's brother, apparently cries treason, and they retreat to the north. And it's said that this cry of treason was so loud, it caused the left flank of the Lancastrians to actually break up and scatter because they didn't know what was going on, leaving their entire army in disarray. So by this time, the fog was actually lifting. The, the sun had started to come up. 
Edward saw that his anonymity was panicking. And again, Edward's very quick with his military. So he very quickly sent his reserves to attack the remaining right side of the Lancastrian line. The reserves quickly decimated the remaining Lancastrian forces. At the end of this battle, Warwick, his brother John, and the Duke of Exeter all were killed. The Lancastrians had lost five to 10,000, and the Yorks had only lost just under 1,000. Now, the next battle would be in 1471, and that would be the Battle of Tewkesbury. So, as we said, you had French forces coming from the south, and Warwick's now coming from the east, and they were supposed to tag team up, but Edward came and cut off Warwick. But Margaret was able to take her men, landed in Dorset, were greeted by the Duke of Somerset, who'd been loyal to them for the entire time, and Edward had started his way back to London had heard about her landing in Dorset two days later. So when Margaret landed, she heard about the death of Warwick at Barnet, and she chose to move her men towards Wales because she had some support up in northern England. And she was also going up to meet her very longtime supporter, Jasper Tudor. The Tudors are still in Wales at this point. Margaret marches her 6,000 men towards Wales, and Edward tried to intercept with his remaining 5,000 just after the Battle of Barnet. Margaret reaches the city of Gloucester, and Edward's over at the nearby city of Cirencester. I am so stupid. I forget words. I hate words. And it was very clear that Margaret was actually trying to cross over at a specific place in the, in the nearby river which would put her into Wales. Edward actually sent a very urgent message to the mayor of the city, telling her, I'm the king, do not let her pass. Do not let her through. And he didn't. Didn't want to disobey your king, I suppose. And so this caused Margaret and her men to continue moving farther north to trying to find another way into Wales. And that's how they met at Tewkesbury. They met on the field on the 4th of May. And... This particular area at the time was covered in marshes and a lot of trees, providing various covers and defenses for the Lancastrian army. They took up similar positions, like in the Battle of Barnet, left flank, right flank, and center. The left and right were actually protected by rivers who center positioned themselves on a hill, so not unlike Towton in a certain aspect. The Yorks did the same thing with their troops into three different parts, but also hid a small cavalry in the woods on their left side. At the beginning, the Yorks had a very major advantage in firepower because they were able to carry their cannons with them. The Queen and her men, on their march from Dorset up to Wales, had to abandon their cannons. So they only have hand-to-hand -hand melee and archers. The battle started with a York advancement, sending a volley of artillery and cannon fire. The Duke of Somerset was commanding the left flank, and he advanced on the Yorkist left flank, which was commanded by Edward. Now, Somerset was actually able to push the Yorks back and away from the rest of the troops and continue to push them back and push them back, but unknown to Somerset, his advancement in causing the York retreat led him towards the woods where the Yorks had their surprise cavalry. The cavalry then joined charged at the Lancastrians, ambushing them. 
and this caused most of the castrians in that section unit to be completely killed, any remainders completely fleeing back to their lines. Now, as Somerset fled back, the York quickly advanced on their enemy, crushing most of them. And at the end of it, Margaret herself was captured. Her son, Edmund. Edmund or Edward? I don't remember. It's Edward. Edward. Okay. So Margaret was captured because obviously you don't just go around killing the queens. Her son, Edward, however, as well as the Duke of Somerset, their longtime supporter, were both captured and executed. They're cutting off all viable, legitimate claims to the throne. Now, after his very victorious victory at Tewkesbury, Edward actually sent forces over to Coventry to prevent further rebellions in Wales and Northern England from uniting when then marching onto London. Now, not long after this, Warwick's younger brother actually arrived in South England with troops from France and actually began amassing support for the Lancastrians. And he marched onto London with about 15,000 men on May 14th. London, obviously still loyal to the Yorks, sent Edward a message about this, saying that, hey, we've got Lancastrians coming in. And within a week, Edward was in London. So the same day that Edward entered London to defend his city on May 21st was also the night that they killed Henry VI. So when Warwick's brother heard about this, as well as the Lancastrian defeat at Tewkesbury, and hearing that his brother had died in battle, He's like, uh, I'm going to nope out of this. And he headed south where he actually soon surrendered. And there were other, a couple other rebellions that peaked at the same time, but they also just flat out surrendered. Also during the same time, Henry Tudor and his uncle Jasper, as we mentioned in our previous episode on the Tudors, decided to flee England and take up court in France. Take up sanctuary, really. But unfortunately, they were hit by a storm, went off course, and landed in Brittany, where the Duke of Brittany kind of used Henry as sort of a bargaining tool with England. Go back to our Tudor episode, you'll get some more information on that. And with the Tudors in exile, all the Lancastrian leaders dead or captured, the next several years under Edward's, Edward's rule was more or less pretty peaceful. Nothing major happened until about 1483. All right. 1483 to 1487. The death of Edward IV is where we will start. So, in his later years in life, Edward's physique of a warrior left and he became indulgent with food. I wonder what king that reminds me of. All of them. Yeah, but what, what king does it remind me of when I say he had gout? Oh, I know you're talking about Henry. I am! You could also say the same same thing about William the Conqueror. Yes. <laughs> so basically, Edward became heavy before his death. He gained a lot of weight. And Edward went on a fishing trip at Windsor. So on this fishing trip at Windsor, he caught a cold. Well, Edward ended up dying, having never recovered from said cold. It is now suspected that that cold probably turned into pneumonia. He was 41 years old at the time of his death on April 9th, 1483, and he died at Westminster. 
Uh, his young son became King Edward V of England for a short period of time. Wasn't really king, though. He never really had a full coronation. No, no, no. His uncle stopped the coronation. I'm about to get into that. Stop stealing my thunder. Jeez. I'm kidding. Okay, Zeus. Thank you. That's such a nice compliment. And if you're Zeus, I guess I'm Hera. I don't know. Or Hades. Maybe we should switch. You can be Zeus and I'll be Hades. No, I'd, I'd rather be Hades. Thank you. <laughs> so when Edward V ascended to the throne, he was 12 years old. And he was considered far too young to rule. His uncle, R Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was named Lord Protector. Even though Richard swore his allegiance to his nephew Edward V, he formed what we like to call a coup d'etat and had himself crowned King of England. He became Richard III. On July 6, 1483, Richard became King of England and his wife became Queen Anne. So Richard becomes Richard III. And uh, he, you, what we call it, we call it usurping the throne. And he had control of both of his brother's children. So King Edward IV left behind two heirs to the throne. One of them named for his, his I would assume it's named after their uncle. I think so. Basically, the children were King Edward V and Richard who was the Duke of York. Another Richard, Duke of York. Because, you know, we don't change names. It's just Richard, Henry, Edward. I'm sorry, were you thinking that there was going to be some variation in names? Psych! Well, there is George, suited for being uh, fighting against your own brother. Well, once again, not very uh, imaginative with the names. Well... When it comes to George, he, he fought with his brother, then deflected, and then came back, fought with his brother, and then deflected. So it's like, um, yeah, it happened twice, dude. Yeah, let's not name Georges until the Georgian era. Thomas More actually wrote about the children and their supposed deaths, and he states that their uncle, Richard III, had the boys killed, and that they were buried at the foot of a set of stairs in the Tower of London. In 1640, 1640 in 1674 <laughs> i was about to say 1647 and, and flip the seven and the four in 1674 when repairs were being done on the tower of london two skeletons were discovered underneath a set of stairs yes and then also read the quote from charles ii about it <laughs> remember that that little uh epitaph about uh these are the the princes in the tower and be damned their uncle the usurper Yep. <laughs> According to Thomas More, Richard III had the boys killed. We don't have any actual evidence that these skeletons are the boys, though. Not 100% surety. However, another alternative to the deaths of the princes in the tower has been put forward, and that is that it was Henry VII who had the kids murdered. Wait, but Henry VII didn't take the throne until 1485. The boys supposedly died in 1483. Supposedly. They're speculating that they may not have. Well, and we're not talking about the imposters either. No, we're talking about King, King uh, well, King, Edward V and Richard, Duke of York, the sons of Edward IV. 
Some believe that they were just kept in the tower the whole time. Literally just left there, basically, and fed. And that's about it. I don't see Henry VII like. Again, it's a second theory. Whether you believe the theory is right or not is completely different. Again, theory. <laughs> so, this alternative is that Henry VII, then Henry the Tudor, Hen- Henry the Tudor. You keep doing that. <laughs> I'm so tired. I don't think you understand. No, I meant, yes, with, like, between this and the Tudor episode, I think both of us have been saying Henry the Tudor. <laughs> As if there's any, uh, oh, no, wait, there are. So Henry the Seventh, who was Henry the, Ch- oh my God! <laughs> You're making fun of me. <laughs> Henry the Seventh, who was Henry Tudor? I finally got it out. I'm not repeating it. Claimed the throne of England via the right of conquest by defeating Richard the Third in battle in 1485. If the sons of Edward IV were still alive, but locked in the Tower of London at the time, then there was the chance that they could claim the throne, or the people could uprise. Therefore, it was better for Henry if he had them killed. Again, this is however hinging on the fact that they were possibly still alive when Henry ascended to the throne. I'm not sure I believe that theory. I'm not sure I believe whether that Richard III actually had them killed or not. Because we haven't true, we're not 100% sure that the skeletons we found are the boys, I'm, I'm just skeptical. Yeah, I mean, I mean if, if I were to take a position on it, I would say the boys possibly died of some kind of natural cause, maybe got sick. I mean, they were kept in the Tower of London. Yes, but you could still roam around the ground. It's not like they were kept in a yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm saying they could have caught something from being in such close quarters. They could have, they could have fallen down the stairs, but, you know, yeah. I, who, they could have just got a generic infection, it's the Middle Ages, they could have got caught with something, and gotten gangrene, and it's the Middle Ages, who knows, maybe they, maybe they ate chicken that wasn't cooked all the way, and they got E. coli and died, who knows? <laughs> yeah, we, we just have zero actual clues if they were truly murdered or if they died via natural causes or right. what I mean, really happened to their skeletons. Right. We can't tell enough from the skeletons to know what they died at from. It's not obvious enough. But my guess is they died during Richard's reign. That's my certain. That, oh, that, that's yeah. where I'm going with that, if anything, because of the way that Henry treated his nephew or Henry the way that Richard treated his his nephew on his way to his coronation, and then the way that he tricked his sister-in-law when he convinced Elizabeth Woodville to give up her other son, the other prince in the tower. Richard. Richard, yeah, Richard. Yeah, he wasn't, Richard just wasn't well-liked by pretty much anybody. Richard III you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm discerning between Richard, Duke of York, the son, and Richard III, king. Yeah, so I think more... I think I think people would like the child. No one liked the man. <laughs> True, I no one liked him. There's a lot of skepticism going on currently since the founding of his body, bones, whatever you want to say, or his burial underneath a parking lot. 
there's a lot of skepticism about him. So, I mean, everything's basically back up in the air when it comes to what he did and how he was and all that other stuff. And most of the stuff we can say on that just came from Shakespeare. Yeah, a bunch of people believe that he was very hunchbacked, and he wasn't. Not according, not according to, to a skeleton. Yeah, exactly. Not according to the bones. <laughs> so, moving on now to Henry the Seventh and uh, landing in Wales. Oh yeah, Yee. Henry. Huh? I said, "Yay, Wales!" Wales. Henry gained an army that were basically majorly made of French mercenaries and were funded by the French king at the time. Yay! Henry gains French support. <laughs> Well, he was able to escape Brittany and went to hang out with his uncle in France, yeah. Yep. And he also received support in Wales, majorly from Rhys Ap Thomas, who owned Kelly Castle near Pembroke. So basically, he landed in Wales, marched through Wales, and continued to gather an army to add to the mercenaries as he marched through Wales to England. Well, he also gained support in Wales because he's Welsh. That's true, too. And he grew up in Pembroke. That's true, too. And he's from a very long, old dynasty in Wales. Yes. <laughs> and so in August of 1485, upon his return to England from exile in France, he brought around 2,000 mercenary soldiers, the French mercenaries. And he's, as he's marching through Wales, like I said, he's gaining uh, soldiers. And the army becomes larger and larger. Richard, at this time, began to assemble his Yorkist army when he heard that Henry Tudor had landed in Wales. Richard's army counted at about 10,000 men strong, and he placed them on a hill outside of Bodgebridge. Across the field, on another hilltop, stood Thomas, Lord Stanley, with an army of about 6,000 men, and just so you know, Lord Stanley is on the side of Henry. He's supporting Henry Tudor in this battle. Do you know why? Do tell. Isn't it because he's his father-in-law or something no, like no, that? No, he's his stepfather. Stepfather. Thank you. That's it. Yeah, it's Lord, Lord Stanley's the third husband of his mother, Margaret of Beaufort. Oh, yeah. That's true. The battle begins, and Lord Stanley actually decides to stay out of the line of fire and did not his, engage his troops at the beginning of the battle. And there's a point in the battle where Richard decided that he would take out Henry directly, and Richard charged him, which meant that Richard was separated from the rest of his army. Not exactly the smartest move you can make, Richard. Come on. Upon seeing that Richard's become separated, Lord. that's when Lord Stanley decides to join the battle, and he aimed himself and his troops directly at Richard. Richard's horse gets caught in a bog, and he ends up having to begin fighting on foot, and, well, let's just say, you know, you become overwhelmed very easily when you're one or maybe a few extra soldiers following you, but you've got an entire 6,000 troops aimed at you. And, well, as we say, he's dead. After Richard's death on the battlefield, the rest of his army fleed, and his crown was actually presented to Henry Tudor right on that battlefield. 
Here you go, you all gonna cave. Would what? you like some battle tactics? Sure. After Henry landed in Wales, he was actually, what's interesting about that, so when he was in Brittany before he escaped to France, there was a garrison around Brittany to kind of try to extradite Henry, but that didn't work. He fled to France, fled to France, and ended up thinking that there would be an attempt of a naval confrontation. Richard decided to line the English coast with garrisons to stop Henry from getting into England. But Henry was able to maneuver around that, got into Wales, amassed some troops, and marched towards Shrewsbury. Richard heard about this, took up arms, and the two obviously met in the field. I have a feeling that Richard was also a really rash, actions first, think later kind of a person. Probably. Given his decisions on some of these things? Yeah, I think so. So on the 21st, as we mentioned, the two took up arms. Richard took up at a position and at Bogworth, known as Andean Field, or sorry, Andean Hill, and Henry took a position uh, at, at a place called Whitemoors, like one end of the field, other end of the field. Stanley was also there with his reinforcements. Now, the thing with Stanley, I don't know if you mentioned it, but just because he's related to Henry Tudor doesn't mean he was fighting for the Tudors or the Lancastrian side. Stanley was kind of a wild card. He was really there to determine who was winning and which side he wanted to join. So I, I don't know if I'd say that's the best stepfather, but it was a political marriage. It wasn't for love. So Stanley took up a position known as Dadlington Hill, which was kind of off to the side on the back end. The Tudors are said to have had around 5,000, with the Yorks actually having about 10,000. This time they're actually overnumbered, and the Lancasters are undernumbered. Uh, Stanley himself, though, had around 5,000 men. So it could have gone one of two ways with that. And as we mentioned, on the morning of the 22nd, the two began to clash. The Duke of Oxford was actually joining Henry on this, and he was actually one of the veterans of the Battle of Barnett and, and actually was really good with his military career. He decided to move the troops again in that three-section formation and march the troops towards the York. As we said, Richard was sort of not expecting this. He was expecting much more of a defensive strategy by the Lancastrians because the Yorks are tended to, tended to be under the previous leaders of the Yorks. They tend to be very upfront. But when Richard saw that the Lancastrians kept advancing, he he, he told his artillery to start volleying them with uh, cannon fire. But the York flank actually continued advancing onto the Lancastrians, causing, I'm sorry, the Lancastrians advance on the York flank that they were fighting against, causing the York flank to back up up to their artillery line, which had to prevent them from stop firing because they would have just been throwing fire. So then everything becomes kind of hand to hand in that section. And during this skirmish, you had the Percy's on the York side, and the Percy's were advancing on Henry's center section. But it's not clear as to why. Or, sorry, Percy wasn't advancing. Where's my brain today? Lower Percy 
was defending the right side flank. Henry was advancing the right side flank, but Percy wasn't advancing on Henry's section, and we don't really know why he was doing that, but some say it's because he Percy feared the joining of Stanley's troops against the uh, with the enemy. Some say he himself was also waiting to see who was going to come out victor and lend his troops towards the victor. But in either case, Percy and his men ended up fleeing, especially when, as we said, Richard's section decided to try to descend Ambien Hill to aid Lord Norfolk on the left flank. But his troops apparently were quite too slow. And this allowed Henry to attack Norfolk's flank from the right, which actually caused a lot of different, uh, a lot of significant damage to the York side. Now, once his troops were actually able to descend Ambien Hill, Richard immediately went and attacked Henry's troops, as we mentioned, pushing them farther and farther. But Lord Oxford, who was fighting with Henry, saw that Henry was kind of being pushed back, sent pikemen to aid him, and together they crushed the Lancastrians. But also what was interesting is, along with the pikemen from Lord Oxford, that little bit of reinforcement, and the Henry and his men retreating back towards the marshes, they were retreating back in the direction of Lord Stanley. And it was kind of right up until the end, but Stanley, upon seeing this, actually sent his brother William out to go help Henry. And William and his men ambushed Richard from the right. So now Richard and his men are completely surrounded. And this is where the turning point in the battle happens because Richard dies. And after Richard dies, the rest of the men and his army just flee because they now no longer have their main commander. You cut off the head of the snake and the body dies situation. At this point, I think the War of the Roses more might be like more of a Hydra. I was talking about Richard and him dying in his own I know. But yes, the Wars of the Roses is more like a Hydra. You cut off a head and two more freaking grow. Until somehow you, you kill it in the heart. I think that would be Henry coming in and defending yeah. Maiden against the dragon. <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. Well, technically, it is sort of true. Because after Richard's wife died, he was, there was rumors he was considering marrying his niece. And that's one of the reasons that Henry came out of exile, because he was he de- publicly declared he was going to marry Elizabeth of York. Yeah. So technically, it is the knight slaying the dragon for the maiden. That's also Victorian romanticism of the Middle Ages. Yeah. So, you know, by the way, I hope you don't think this is over. <laughs> there's well, we've got another one. episode oh oh no I just meant about the battle but there's another battle there's a few but I thought they were more skirmishes there's another major battle oh because Bosworth is usually considered to be the decisive end I know there's a couple little rebellions and then there are the two imposters we'll talk about next episode well we're going to talk about one at this one. Oh. Because of the Battle of Bosworth Field. We just talked about Bosworth Field. I mean, Stoke Field. Two years after Henry VII's victory at Bosworth Field, the Earl of Lincoln, a Yorkist, decided to rise up against Henry. And the Earl of Lincoln returned to England 
with a mercenary army assembled from men from Germany, Switzerland, and Ireland. Just a bunch of random mercenaries. And along with him was a man named Lambert Simnel. Lambert was a Yorkist imposter claiming to be from the royal bloodline and a claimant to an English throne and having a better claim than Henry. On June 16, 1487, Lincoln's 8,000 men army took their position on top of Rampire Hill and waited for Henry's army. Henry's army, led by the Earl of Oxford, arrived and tried to separate their army into three sets of troops, so three groups. But before they could officially finish separating into those three groups, Lincoln's men decided to attack. Battle lasted for several hours, and even if Lincoln's army wanted to retreat, they weren't able to because behind them was the River Trent. You're kind of stuck. Not It wasn't strategically well thought out, at least not on the side of Lincoln and his Yorkist men or his mercenaries. So because the River Trent's behind, it's, you're, it's impossible to retreat, and therefore this would be a battle to the death, to the end. And the mercenary army did end up losing as they were pushed back and down a ravine. Oh, I know, I know what you're talking about. It's still called whatever they're calling it to this day. It was so bloody. Yeah, the bloody gutter. Yeah. That's it. Sounds about right. It, it, yeah. I mean, all these men were basically pushed down to the bottom of the ravine. 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 And... At the end of this battle, Henry's right to the throne was secured for him and his descendants. Well, until you get to the other imposters. That's later on. We'll talk about that. Yeah, and we'll talk about that next episode. But that's all I've gotten. That's the end of this one. <laughs> I think we've been at this for about two hours. So, who the outro we go. <laughs> By the way, don't forget to find us on Instagram at History Explains It All underscore podcast, as well as at Facebook. You can also reach out to us via our email, historyexplainsall at gmail.com. And don't forget to go and vote on polls and check out our Instagram for Today in History and Archaeology in the News. And if you have iTunes, a rate and review would be excellent. That's how people find us, so we'd actually really appreciate that. Thank you very much, and we do want to hear your feedback, so... Reach out to us either via our email or leave that review. And that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. You want me to do it? <laughs> and we hope to see you next week as we trek through history to explain, explain it all. Bye. Bye. <laughs>